Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a warm day in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the microscope. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Paul Douglas. Paul is the Vice President of Rigid Haulers, an arm of Volvo Construction Equipment and that is a major international company that develops, manufactures and markets equipment for construction and related industries. Paul, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on with us today. Good morning, Scott. It's great to be here. Fantastic to have you, Paul. Now, this podcast, first and foremost, is about leadership and effective leadership specifically. But what does that word leader actually mean to you? It's a great question. And leadership means many things to me. But I think the the main one is responsibility. When you're in a position as the leader of an organization or a business, whatever it may be, then you definitely have a huge amount of responsibility on your shoulders. And you need to be very careful in how you treat that responsibility. And it takes many shapes and forms. And if we talk about um, your own uh, leadership style, how would you describe that? Yeah, the, one of the key things that I like to think is, is honesty, is that you have to be very open and honest with your team. Within reason, obviously there are some things which will be business confidential. But I think that if you want to engender trust in your team and if you do engender trust then you will achieve a huge amount with your team then you have to be as open and as honest as you can be with them and that's achieved typically through good communication but then very importantly if you follow up on the things you have discussed or agreed with your team then that trust starts to build and with that you start to achieve great things with your team. And I think that communication and trust is so, so important in the context of the here and now, isn't it? With the disruption caused by the COVID-19 outbreak, there's a whole lot of people working from home and having to be self-motivated, having to be independent. And business leaders need to be able to trust them to be getting on with their daily tasks and essentially um, gearing towards that uh, collective goal as well, don't they? It's a, it's a great point, Scott. Yeah, in the current climate, communication has never been more important. And actually, we're being tested every day, every hour, in understanding how our communication channels work, how effective they are. And because communication is two-way, it's not just about conveying a message or information, it's also about getting feedback. And in the current climate, that's sometimes very difficult to get that feedback. Is the information being received? Is it being understood? And what do the team members want us to do um, in terms of feedback? So yeah, the the climate right now is, is really challenging everything that that we understand about communications and how to keep in touch with our teams because some of us are still trying to keep businesses going and there are still things that we can achieve. We still have customers out there. We still have shareholders and stakeholders uh, for our businesses who we need to, to continue to support and continue to keep communicating with. Absolutely right. And um, in terms of maintaining communication as well, um, in this day and age, social media applications and uh, different video applications, they've had a real major part to play in that as well, though, haven't they? They have. Yeah, they've, they've absolutely come into their own. And, you know, in 2020, many of us are familiar with things like Zoom and Skype, and FaceTime, using these digital methods. But um, they've been absolutely vital. Um, in, in keeping businesses going, but more importantly, keeping us informed and keeping us in contact 
with their team, with their business partners, with their shareholders and stakeholders. Yeah, so they've absolutely come into their own in the current situation. They certainly have, and um, with, of course, some every positive that um, social media applications do bring, there are also pitfalls as well. And we do see that particularly with the uh, the younger generation because um, it does make uh, people, especially in leadership positions, young leaders especially, far more prone to things like criticism. Um, do you think that perhaps there is a fear among particularly younger people starting leadership roles of failing and making mistakes, whereas perhaps they should embrace that a little bit more and use that more as a learning curve? Uh, yeah, it's a good point. I think that um, one of, you know, I'm from a, a generally an older generation and uh, a lot of the digi- dig- methods of digital communication didn't exist when I started out uh, as a young leader. Um, I've always believed that, you know, you can never beat face-to-face contact. You can never meet uh, beat meeting a person in the room or at their place of work or at their job site. That way, you're getting a much better understanding of what they do and how they do it. And then adds to another element of important element of leadership, which is credibility. Um, you can't learn everything from your smartphone or from your um, Zoom video. Sometimes you do have to go to the place. Sometimes you go and have to have a better or a closer understanding. And I think it's important that the young leaders, the younger generation also understand that, that not everything can be achieved at arm's length on a smartphone. Absolutely. And if you were to channel your experience and give some advice to the uh, the next generation of emerging leaders, what sort of advice would you give them? Uh, one of the things I would say is that it can be a lonely place being a leader. You've probably heard that from many of the other leaders that you speak to, but you don't have to be alone. There are plenty of opportunities to network. And I would encourage young leaders, up and coming young generation going into leadership, that they reach out to networks because the bottom line is people have done this before. There are very few situations and problems. This coronavirus is is very extreme and rare, but there are very few situations in business that haven't been faced before or similar situations that haven't been faced before. And therefore, someone already has that experience. So I would encourage that they look at their networking opportunities within their industry, within the segment that they're in, within their profession, and to reach out and, and join those those groups to get a better and a wider understanding, because many, many of the issues they face will already be dealt with, and there's some great experience that can be shared. And one of the things I find as, a, as a getting on in my career is that I actually get a lot of pleasure out of sharing my experiences with the younger generation. It's actually a great thing as a leader to be able to share those experiences. You make a really, really valid point there. And um, I think also um, it's important that leaders do remember that they're very much not in their role alone, are they? It's just as much about the people around them. And it is important to surround yourself with people who are going to advise you, who are going to get the best out of you. And also you are going to get the best out of them and help them flourish as well. It's so, so important, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, um, we talked um, as well um, quite a bit about um, your own leadership style and the ideal forms of uh, leadership that you see, uh, Paul. But um, what would you say have been the influences behind the way that you've um, imposed leadership over the years? Yeah, I've been very fortunate. I've worked for several international companies and I've been able to see the different approaches to leadership that some different cultures have. So I've been fortunate to work for Japanese companies. I've served on the board of a Chinese organization and I've been involved with uh, various American and European companies in my career. So I've learned a lot in terms of the culture approach to leadership and the way that things are conducted. So that's been 
a great uh, learning and a great opportunity. Now everyone doesn't get that that opportunity of international exposure, but it, but it has been something that's really helped me in terms of understanding the roles of a leader in terms of the responsibilities that you have. And going back to what we said before, that good communication, being open and honest, will build that trust with your team. And, and it has a huge value as you go forward. And do you think that leaders who are good people, persons, as it were, do you think that they're just naturally born with the ability to be that way? Or do you think it's something that is developed throughout one's career as you get to meet more people, work with more people and develop more of a rapport? I think it's a bit of both. Um, I've, I definitely believe that people are born with a, a natural ability to be good with other people, to be good communicators. Um, I think you can be trained and developed, of course, but there are some people that are strong as being solo performers and thinkers and maybe not so great working in a team, but, and there's a place for that. But there are other people that have natural talents for being good at communicating, good working with groups of people, good at leadership. So I definitely think, yes, some people are born with that natural uh, talent in their DNA, and they also choose the right development path and development opportunities where they can build their leadership competency because we don't have all of the skills and competencies in our toolkit when we are young leaders and there are great areas that you can develop and there's great opportunities to develop through courses, on the job learning, from your peer group or even most of us have a boss so even looking to your, to your boss to learn from them as you go forward. So I think it's a bit of both. I think some people have natural talent and you can enhance that with professional development and competency and skill development throughout your career. See exactly where you're coming from, Paul. And also that idea of development, it links back to this idea, doesn't it, that human beings are essentially fallible and that leaders aren't going to get every single decision right because leaders themselves who are in leadership roles, they are going to be essentially learning on the job, aren't they, in a way? They are going to be making mistakes and developing their own leadership skills, even when they are in that position as well. Yeah, that's a great point you've just made there, Scott, that you will make mistakes. You won't get everything right. You'll have all the information to your hand. Uh, you'll have your team supporting you, helping you to make that right decision. But at the end of the day, you will have to make a decision. And then there will be times you not get it right. The key thing is that you learn from that, that you do not make that same mistake again. You understand why the outcome was the way it was, and then you learn going forward. That's a, one of the key things a leader has to be very good at, is, is learning from those experiences. Don't be afraid to make a decision. And once you've made the decision with good information, you're more likely it'll be the right decision. But there will be the odd time it's wrong and you have to learn from that going forward. And that's very important. It's a great point. Yes, learning from it's hugely important. And uh, would you say it's also important for leaders to have a little bit of a thick skin as well? Because when they inevitably make mistakes, even if they do learn from them, there is always that possibility that they'll face some criticism for that decision as well. And they will have to weather that. That's it. You're absolutely right. There will be positive feedback and there will be criticism. There will be negative comments. There will be opportunities for improvement. And a wise leader, a good leader, will listen to all of that with open mind, um, open ears, open eyes, and take that on board and, and use that going forward. Because, you know, none of us are perfect. Everyone has gaps. Uh, and then it's about understanding where those gaps are, learning from that, and improving it going forward for the next time.
And I think that's very sound advice indeed, Paul. Um, I am conscious of uh, running out of time on today's programme, but before I do let you go, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for the business, both Rigid Haulers and the wider Volvo Construction Equipment Company, and also what you hope to achieve in that time, particularly navigating COVID-19 and then coming out of the other side of the outbreak. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question in the current climate. Um, you know, two months ago, I never thought I would be answering a question like that in the way I have to. So first and foremost, the health of our team and our team family members, that's the most important thing. We need to make sure that everyone gets through this current crisis as healthily and safely as possible. Um, and by following the government's advice, staying at home, yeah, supporting the NHS and, and saving lives, that's what we are encouraging across the whole of the Volvo world, not just here at our facility in the UK. Um, so this will come to an end. We will get through this. Things are going to be different at the other side. So the concerns from a business perspective and leadership is that the demand in our industry will certainly have taken an impact. It will be down. Just how different it will look, we don't know. None of us have that uh, foresight at the moment. What what we have to do is to get the business ready for this probably lower demand level that we're going to face. And it's about the speed of reacting to that. So understanding what the market's going to look like at the other side of this, getting the business ready to respond to that. Because we, we work in a business world where you know business levels fluctuate. We have good times, we have lean periods. So I definitely think there is a lean period coming in the second half of the year because of this crisis. And it's about right-sizing the business for that, managing our way through that, and making sure that we are in close contact with our customers, our partners in this industry, and ensuring that team members are aware of what's happening and and what we are doing to make sure that we get through it. We've been in crisis situations before. This one is very unprecedented. And as I said, right now, we don't know what the future does look like, but we do have the right tools that we can use to get through this, and that's what we'll do. So it's about right-sizing, getting ready for what will be a tough, climate going forward. I've heard you know, the economists say the bounce back could be quick. We hope so, but uh, let's just see how the, the markets develop and we will try to make sure that we are managing our, our business and steering our business through that in the right way. Exactly. It's all that business can do at the moment because it is a very uncertain time. But as you say there, Paul, those close relationships, maintaining that rapport, not just among colleagues, but also with clients and other individuals is going to be so, so important going forward. Um, I have to say, I mean, it's been really insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on today's programme. And I think what would be great in a few months time for the benefit of the listeners is to perhaps even have you back on the air just to look at this retrospectively and just see how things have uh, really played out in that respect. But for now, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the programme and speak with me today. Thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure, Paul. I've really enjoyed it. Um, Coming up next on the programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former cricketer Sir Andrew Strauss. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Sir Andrew, and that's coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team, and former director of cricket at the ECB. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood 
for services to support just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy 
everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know... Uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that. But perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after. Because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but uh, i did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of 
a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realisation this is going to be a tough thing to do um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, And when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. (laughs) How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, yes. Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, 
you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. It's quite a radical shift from what we, 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 what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... In fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I, mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of you know emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. 
and I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary numbers. Yeah, I mean, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and and make it more of a community thing, not just the 
the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing re- wearing red. So what w- what an extraordinary thing! Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one, day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in Mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are yeah, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to. I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.